You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are delighted today to be joined by Dr. Celine Gounder. Welcome, Celine. It's great to be here. Celine is a clinical assistant professor of medicine and infectious diseases at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. She's the CEO, president, and founder of Just Human Productions, a nonprofit multimedia organization. She hosts and produces two excellent podcast series, Epidemic and American Diagnosis. She's been a member of the Biden-Harris Transition COVID-19 Advisory Board And as we may hear over the course of this conversation, members of that group, though that group has formally dissolved, some members of them, including Celine, remain quite active. So thanks so much for joining us, Celine. We're delighted to have you with us today. I've thoroughly enjoyed your Epidemic podcast series, and it's just terrific. I want to start by talking about what we've seen in the last few days, which is this remarkable set of of events involving Deborah Burks, Tony Fauci, Robert Redfield, as we've transitioned out of the Trump administration into the Biden years, each of them in an individual way has come forward to try and discuss and reflect what that experience was like. You know, these were people with strong reputations, years of service to the country who were brought in to the response over the course of the year. The response went through different phases. They all seem to sense that early on in March, there was a more of a consensus and a, and a more acceptance of science and public health that moved into the early lockdown. But then things started to kind of come unhinged from mid-April forward as the Trump administration pivoted away from a federally led effort and pushed things onto states as we had premature reopening and rebound over the summer. And then as the presidential electoral cycle kicked in, we saw Atlas arrive end of July, et cetera, et cetera. And the stories that they tell are really of a White House that brought them in to validate and advise, but also brought them in as as they erected a parallel universe of information and data that falsely represented what was happening at the behest of the president and led by the president. They were in this terribly awkward quandary, ethically and reputationally and the like. They stuck with it. And now they're reflecting on this. Celine, tell us, as you as you watch and read and listen to these accounts, what what do you think? What's your reaction? Well, I I think this is the difference between being a career government scientist and being a political appointee in a White House. And, And I do think this is one reason Dr. Fauci has come through relatively unscathed from this experience. Tony Fauci has worked under numerous different administrations going back to the Reagan years. And he made a very thoughtful decision to remain director of the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, rather than rising to the level of the director of the National Institutes of Health or or even beyond that. And I think that was a very conscious decision because he wanted to stay close to the science. He knew that the higher he rose beyond that, the more political his 
position would become. And so I think, you know, on the one hand is is very good at navigating the politics, but also understands um, the limits of that. And I think this is a critical difference between him and, and Bob Redfield and Deborah Burks in that they were political appointees, Dr. Redfield to the CDC, Dr. Burks to the White House task force. And I think when you're a political appointee, it's not just unfortunately about the science, as much as you try to stick to the science, I think you really need to think about how well aligned the policies you're hoping to advance, how well aligned those are with the person appointing you to office. And really the approach that person takes to these kinds of these issues. You know, unfortunately, I think Dr. Redfield and Dr. Burks found themselves in very different positions as a result. Yeah, and they face, I think, higher risks. I mean, uh, Tony Fauci exited with his reputation higher, perhaps, and in, in a much more publicly endorsed and embraced figure than before. You know, he's become a hero. He's been embraced by President Biden and made the chief medical advisor. It does seem that, you know, the picture that's drawn is these experts, they come from inside, they come from outside, they may be political. In the case of Deborah, she had an office in the White House, sort of hard to deny that sort of you weren't part of that because she was there, she was brought in to validate and bless things. And proximity to power is an awfully powerful lure. And public health experts, it seems to me, I mean, Tony's terribly seasoned at managing White House relationships through six or seven administrations, but also managing message, dealing with the media and the like. And, and that kind of expertise doesn't come very often. And that kind of gravitas and unassailability in a way, uh, even though he was attacked from within the White House, he was attacked by the White House adherents outside. Same thing for Deborah. Redfield was, was criticized as well by delivering bad news or speaking too truthfully. What do you think the long-term lesson is going to be for people listening to these accounts of the coercion, the threats, the manipulations that these people experienced? Yeah, I think you're right that proximity to power is intoxicating. And I do think it corrupts judgment, unfortunately. And I think having a title is very different from having true power. I think if you look back at other prior epidemics, pandemics, perhaps the most comparable one in some ways was Ebola in West Africa. A number of those countries were in the middle of their own presidential elections at the time. And you could see how extremely politicized that response got as a result. You had proliferation of rumors and disinformation and conspiracy theories on the ground there. We ourselves were in the middle of our midterm elections here in 2014 at the time, and you saw a similar impact. And I think Having lived through that so recently, I think there were some critical lessons there in terms of, you know, what it would be like to work with an administration when the president was up for re-election. And I do think that should have been a red flag, frankly, to Dr. Burks in particular. Dr. Redfield was already in his position by that time. But for Dr. Burks, I, you know, I, I would certainly have given this much, much more thought, I mean, to be fair, she said she turned it down some 20 times or so. I just don't think this was a a situation where there was true power to steer the ship. And 
if anything, at, at that point, you do become complicit because you are giving your lending your reputation to an effort that is is not grounded in science and, and the basics of public health. Andrew, what's your thoughts? How did you see this? We know Debbie Burks a little bit and we know Redfield and of course we know Tony. It's hard to separate the Deborah Burks that we know who is the, you know, the mother who lives in a multi-generational family who, you know, is an honest person. And when she says, you know, that there were parallel facts that were given to the president, you, you want to believe her. And I do believe her. I think that, you know, Almost nobody who went into this White House could have come out unscathed. And, you know, as Celine said, Tony, you know, for the most part did because Tony, you know, had decades and decades of experience in dealing with the politics of Washington. You know, doctors like Debbie Burks and Dr. Redfield, you know, were dedicated to science throughout their career and maybe not so much adroit at navigating the politics of Washington. I think that they, you know, I look at both of them as victims. I don't disagree with you. I think there is no question there were parallel sources, streams of information. Yeah. I think it's more a question of going into that position how predictable was that situation? And I think the former president had a very long history of dealing with other people in various sectors where this really could have been predicted. You could see how this was likely to play out. And I think that's where she could perhaps better have anticipated how challenging this situation would be. Yeah, I think there's no doubt about that, Celine. You know, and I think a lot of people went into this administration with their eyes wide open. But at the same time, anyone who went into this administration had to have confidence in their own abilities and thought, well, maybe I'm going to be the one that makes the difference. Right. And maybe I'm going to be the one that's going to be the adult in the room and I'm going to be the one that, you know, turns the tide and does some good for this country. You know, I had similar feelings when, you know, Rex Tillerson, a longtime member of the CSIS board, became secretary of state. We all thought, okay, well, you know, at least somebody, you know, that we know to be a good person, know to be somebody who's doing this for the right reasons. This isn't somebody who, you know, needed that position, who had political ambitions. This is somebody who probably even went in reluctantly. So many people went into this administration thinking that they could do the right thing, that they could, you know, change the tenor of this administration and look top to bottom. It was almost a disaster at every turn. Yeah, there's an interesting exceptionalism to that, right? You know, I'll somehow be different. And, and I think that's fundamentally where the problem is. Why will you be different um, when so many others have not been able to navigate this and you know, I think I think that's where we need to be a little bit more thoughtful. There was a certain amount of defiance from Tony Fauci. And I remember telling a lot of colleagues and friends who even thought about it, you know, hey, you, you better really think very carefully before you sign up for this, because this is a no win situation for everybody. I do have to say I was really impressed by Dr. Burks's road trip across the country to meet with governors and other local officials, public health officials and, and elected officials. I do think that kind of public health diplomacy can have a real impact and I think really did have an impact in, in many parts of the country. And I was really sad to see that the media didn't give that effort much attention because I, I do think she made a very smart pivot understanding 
that there were limitations to how much she could accomplish in the White House in D.C., but that there was much she could do on the ground elsewhere. Why don't we move on? Andrew, you wanted to pose a question around sort of the arc of what lies ahead here in 2021? Yeah, Celine, you're, you're one of the doctors out there. I, you know, my role in this podcast is, you know, I'm a media expert and you're one of the doctors who's out there who really understands communication and really understands the media. You know, recently it's been reported in the New York Times and other places that Columbia University has a, a new model that shows that even when people are vaccinated, that millions more will still be infected and become ill unless people continue to wear masks, maintain social distancing measures, and, you know, in, unless people's behavior changes. And then, of course, we also have the variants to deal with. What do you think needs to happen now? President Biden has certainly got off on the right foot here with mandates and the right messages. But what needs to happen for us to, to really get to the other side of this? Yeah, I, I, I'm really pleased to see the tone in terms of how he's communicating with the public right now. It's very much a tone of unification, healing, because I, I think that is the way to get to the other side of this. I don't think there's much room to be pointing fingers and blaming. I think we do need to come together. And I think that is really, really important coming from the top. And I think it's important to be role modeling the right behaviors from the top. So I think that will certainly be helpful. But at the same time, I don't think it's enough for the president to say everybody should wear masks. I think, unfortunately, this has been politicized, whether it's mask wearing or social distancing or any of these measures. And so that is going to require really genuine outreach to trusted messengers, which has almost become a, a cliched term at this point because we talk about it so much. But I, I really do think it's important to identify people in different communities who remain skeptical. And, you know, in some communities, it could be your local sheriff or it might be the school superintendent. In other communities, it might be the soccer coach or the faith leader. But it's, you know, who is it that people look to for advice and leadership? And I think that's going to be a really important piece. And what's challenging about that, that's not a PSA, uh, you know, that you blast on all the, you know, as a commercial on all the different television stations. It's not about people going on the evening news or writing op-eds necessarily. It's, it's really about person-to-person -person communication. And so, that's really going to require outreach to many, many people. And I know that the new administration has already been thinking very deeply about this, but that's that's really a challenging process because you really have to map who those people are, facilitate them having the right information, the right messages, the right support, and then helping them also uh, reach out into their communities. Selena, so how do you respond to this I mean, you were part of the advisory group and you were part of the discussions around putting together the, the plans. But last week was just remarkable in the administration putting forward this very muscular FDR style wartime mobilization, 13 executive orders, three presidential memoranda, you know, a $400 billion price tag. And, and then the follow up in terms of engagement with the media. I mean, just yesterday we had. Rochelle Walensky from CDC, Tony Fauci, Vivek Murthy, Ron Klain, all on the Sunday morning talk shows making the case. What do you make of this and what 
What do you have the highest hope for in terms of the essential elements of this strategy that can move forward without getting stuck in Congress for funding? What are you what are you hoping for as the major changes? Well, I think that was so important. All of those Sunday news shows yesterday, I think it's so important to have public health leaders and scientists speaking directly with the media, speaking directly to the science, and to have much more transparency. I think when there is a lack of transparency, that is when you see disinformation and conspiracy theories propagate. And and so I think just that alone is a, a really important step. And I think there is something really calming and healing about having those kinds of leaders tell you, okay, this is what we we know. This is what we don't know. This is what we need to do moving forward. And to feel like that's coming from people who are not there to win the next election. They're really just there to tackle the problem and, and to help the American people. Not to mention Joe Biden might not even be there to win the next election. Right. 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 You know, he's just there to help people, you know, get back on their feet. No, and I think that's a really important point, too. So Tony said on Friday at the White House briefing, Tony Fauci said that if we can get 85 percent of the American people vaccinated by the summer, then we have a chance at having some measure of normality by the fall. What does that mean to you? What do you think that means? You know, I I. I I'm still very concerned about the supply of vaccine and how quickly we can get it out there. Um, I think one of the things that was really alarming to realize is that our vaccine supply is a black box. We don't have very much insight into where the vaccine doses are and how many are where. And so that includes vaccines that are coming off the production line, vaccine doses that are in pharmaceutical company warehouses, some of which have been allocated to the state. So basically assigned to certain states. Some of those have been ordered by states and then delivered to states. And some of those have been then delivered to facilities in those states. And just the basic information on how many of which kind of vaccine are where along that line um, We don't have that. And so this is precisely why facilities are struggling with appointments, because either they're overshooting and scheduling too many appointments, and then they have to turn people away, or they're undershooting and not scheduling enough appointments, and then you don't use all of the vaccine you have available. And it's because they're not getting information from the federal government and and from the distributors about how many vaccine doses am I going to get in a week or two? They're only getting a couple days notice. And so it's very hard to then manage an appointment system, registration system, when you have information coming to you so last minute. So that has me very concerned. And I think the other piece of it um, in terms of hitting, you know, 85% of people vaccinated by the summer, yes, we have enough doses of vaccine to meet targets in the first hundred days beyond that. There are some concerns about what the manufacturing capacity is going to look like, how many doses we're going to have on hand. We have been told that the capacity will ramp up over time, but then some of the initial projections around doses ended up being overly optimistic and and those were then cut back. So I think that's certainly going to be a challenge. And then 
to get to 85% means 85% of Americans need to be willing to get vaccinated. And I do think hesitancy is already in many groups decreasing. More and more people have seen and heard about others being vaccinated. They're seeing that these vaccines truly are safe and effective. And so I think some of that hesitancy is dropping away, but have we reached 85% of people stepping up to, to want to get vaccinated, I don't think we've hit that yet. So, you know, we have a number of different obstacles to, to hitting that target by the summer. Not the least of which is just this question that you pointed to, which is if there's going to be limited supplies, we hit a point in the spring where we've got 100 million, we're moving towards a higher number, but the supplies are constrained. Can the Defense Production Act be brought forward in some meaningful way to force higher production? It's not clear to me that that's really an option in this instance. There's never been scaled production of the messenger RNA vaccines in this way. Some of the black box that you talked about was the lack of transparency and secrecy in the administration itself. Some of it is just, I think, this sort of the confusion that exists within the industry itself and understanding what it's capable of doing. And with the new variant now creating even higher levels of urgency of needing to move very rapidly on an accelerated basis for to vaccinate Americans, we're going to come back to this question of what can the federal government do to get more vaccine into this country as fast as possible. J&J may come online with lower safety and efficacy fairly soon, but single dose and easier to handle. And then the question of what Pfizer and Moderna are capable of doing. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this is, there are limits to what the Defense Production Act can accomplish here. Um, I, I do think the companies really are producing at the maximum that they can, maximum rate that they can. I think where you do have some constraints is around some of the raw materials. So there may be a role there. Some of the other constraints are around things like the glass vials that you need to package the vaccine. There's now what are called dead space needles to get that sixth dose out of the Pfizer vaccine vial so that you instead of five, you have six doses, making sure we have enough of those needles available. So there are a few things, specific things like that, that the Defense Production Act may be helpful for, but I I just don't think it's going to solve everything here. And, And I think people need to be realistic that there's not going to be enough vaccine for 330 million Americans on day one. That's simply just not realistic. And so we we cannot return to life as normal right away. We do need to continue masking and social distancing and all of these other things until the vaccine supply is, is enough. Now, I know our time's getting a little short. I don't want to end without talking a little bit about the international engagement. I mean, the president came forward resume the relationship with WHO, committed to the COVAX facility for getting vaccines through Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, to low- and middle-income countries, has issued some a national security directive laying out that we need a, a new diplomatic strategy outlined fairly quickly. There's expectations of an envoy being appointed. But we are in the midst of these multiple concurrent crises here in the United States that are going to consume 99% of of the attention of of the senior decision makers here. And we don't know when or at what level we're going to have surplus vaccines that we can put to other purposes. We just spent a lot of time talking about how 
scarce vaccines may be for our own internal purposes. Are you hopeful that we can, that the U.S. can fill a void and catalyze high-level diplomacy to try and bring others around a sort of common strategy of bringing access, affordable and safe access to these vaccines in the lower and middle-income countries? I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I I do think there are some key things I I hope people also understand about why this is a global issue and, and why we should engage on the global stage. And I think one, supply chains are not domestic only. And if we are to say, you know, we're not going to think about the rest of the world when it comes to vaccine supply, Well, some of the raw materials that go into our vaccines may be produced overseas, not to mention all of the other things we need for the pandemic response, whether that is personal protective equipment, the gowns, the gloves, the masks, a lot of that is produced overseas, whether it is the pipette tips, those plastic tips that you need to run some of the PCR and and genomic tests on the virus. So there are a lot of things that, you know, if we don't play nice, so to speak, with the rest of the world, there are scarce commodities that they can also withhold from us. So I do think we need to be careful in in how we think about these supply chains. I think the other issue is um, around surveillance. And I, I think clearly, if we don't collaborate with others, share information with others, support the infrastructure for strong surveillance in other countries, that hurts us because it means that we have less visibility into what's happening on the ground. We have less of a sense of what might be brewing and what might emerge. And so I think it's really important to be supporting, whether it's the Africa CDC or the China CDC or some of these other efforts, because it is in our interest as well. There's one interesting thing in that National Security Directive, which calls for the creation of a an epidemiological forecasting and pandemic analytics center within the United States. Why, what what is that, and why is that so important? It gets quite a bit of play. Yeah, I think this was really um, a very exciting announcement, and to be able to link genetic information on some of these emerging pathogens with clinical information, with epidemiological information, to have that wealth of knowledge all tied together. I mean, this is big data, right? Big data is powerful because you have so many data sets linked together, and then you gather new insights because of that. And I think unfortunately, so many aspects of public health have been underinvested in for so long. Bioinformatics is a really key part of that. And to see finally some understanding that we really need to be investing in this area and leveraging all of the different technological advancements and pairing them together, that's the kind of you know radar system we need, so to speak, uh, to predict and anticipate the next outbreaks and be prepared for that. You know, I think I may have buried the lead in asking perhaps the key question, but does the arrival of new variants suggest that we've entered a longer term coronavirus pandemic era? So, you know, we we certainly are very concerned about the variants, and this has been reported elsewhere, so I'm not really breaking any news here, but our advisory board did have an emergency meeting on Christmas Eve as we were learning about these to, to start to think through what needed to be done. I think what we've seen are... are sort of two different patterns. You have the UK variant, which is more transmissible and may be more virulent. Either way, it it will certainly cause more disease and death. And so that 
really emphasizes the importance of one, getting the vaccine out as quickly as possible, as well as doubling down on masking and social distancing and the like, because we really do need to block transmission as quickly as possible especially with the emergence of a new variant that's more transmissible. So that's the the UK strain. And then the South Africa and Brazil strains are concerning because they may evade the natural immune response. So if somebody has been previously infected, that immunity, even if they have some level of short-term immunity, may not protect them against these new variants. And so that is very concerning. And we don't know yet what this might mean for the vaccines. Will the vaccines that we currently have available generate an immune response that protects against the variants? And this is something that is being very actively studied. Moderna, it was announced today, is already looking at uh, retooling their current vaccine for the variants. So that, that certainly is going to complicate vaccine production and distribution. And so I think, I think we do need to be prepared for this prolonging the entire process. I think we need to be prepared for new recommendations around vaccination, perhaps a booster with, for the, the variant after initial vaccination. And I think we need to really focus on doing everything possible, not just vaccination to prevent transmission. When you allow a virus like this to spread wild, like wildfire, you allow it to mutate every time it spreads from one person to another, and you allow these variants to emerge. So we we really have shot ourselves in the foot by allowing the virus to spread the way we have. Thank you, Celine. We, we like to close each of these episodes by asking you to tell us where you find the greatest hope, strength, optimism, looking forward into the future. You know, I I really feel so reassured by seeing science take the lead on this. And science may arrive at certain conclusions that may not always be convenient. But at the same time, big picture, I think we've seen very clearly over the past year that it is not science or public health versus the economy, for example. I think Countries, nations that have controlled the epidemic more effectively using the science have found themselves in a better place in terms of reopening businesses and at least some aspects of normal life. So I think that's an important lesson. And so I am very reassured to see science taking the lead. And finally, to just quote Bill Fagey, who was one of the leaders of smallpox eradication, a former director of the CDC, He says that fatalism, skepticism, pessimism, those are the greatest threats to public health. And I I think it's really important to remember that once you give up, once you throw up your hands and say, that's just too hard, that's when you've really lost. And, And so to see people who really are energized and motivated to do everything possible to really lead an all of government, all hands on deck response here. That is what really I I am optimistic about. Thanks so much. Thanks for being with us. And thanks for all you do, Celine. Oh, my pleasure. It's great to be here.